If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, maybe get 30, maybe get 20, 20, 20, maybe get 20, 20, maybe get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Just how close did the Cold War get to becoming hot? And has it ever really ended? In the latest episode of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, Professor Michael Goodman of King's College London tackles questions on the conflict that divided East and West, from the evolution of espionage on either side of the Iron Curtain to the global impact of the conflict. Putting the questions to Michael was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Our topic for today's Everything You Wanted to Know podcast episode is the Cold War. Our expert is Professor Michael Goodman, Professor of Intelligence and International Affairs and Head of the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Absolute pleasure. Great. So as with previous episodes, the format will be looking at popular search queries around the subject and also some some listener questions as well. And we've had some great listener questions. So thanks so much for all of your your submissions ahead of this episode. And, And to start us off, Mike, perhaps we could start by covering off a couple of the most broad search queries um, that are are most often put to Google about the subject, which are, when was the Cold War and and who was it between? The Cold War was the battle that really broke out in the aftermath of World War II and lasted lasted up until 1991. The two main protagonists were the United States on the one hand and the Soviet Union on the other. But of course, like everything, it's much more complex than that. 
Of course, yes. So you mentioned the aftermath of World War II there. So can we perhaps dig into those tensions that that um, kind of were bubbling away underneath that conflict and kind of came to the fore then in, in the years that followed? Yeah, well, World War II, of course, began at different times for different um, countries. For, for Britain, it was 1939. For the United States uh, and the Soviet Union, it was 1941 in different ways. Um, and the bit that brought together Britain and America and the Soviet Union and France as the four main allies was, of course, a, a dislike of Nazism, a fear of what the Germans were up to and, and the other Axis powers, um, as well as Italy and Japan most, most prominently. Uh, for many, it was described as a marriage of convenience. In other words, it wasn't that Britain, France, the Soviet Union, America were joined by any great love for one another. It, it was more out of a fear of what the Germans were up to. So the idea of a marriage of convenience really underpinned a lot of what went on. And as the Germans began to lose and as the war began to go in the Allies' favour, those cracks began to appear more and more. So, yeah, so we've already started covering it, really. So one of the other key questions about um, this conflict on Google is is why and how did it start? So perhaps we can talk about how those ideological fractures started to appear in in this aftermath. Yeah, I think most people would date the start of the Cold War to the period after World War II. In theory, at least, the Cold War was a political ideological battle between communism on the one hand and capitalism on the other. So some people have argued that it goes all the way back to 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, the rise of the communist state, the idea of worldwide communist revolution. But really, it was only with World War Two and the aftermath that it began to take on the form that we sort of associate it with, I think. You, you've mentioned broadly um, the the two sides, I guess, that most people will be familiar with, the USA and the USSR. Um, can we just lay out for our listeners who might be coming to the subject completely new, you know, what, what the ideology and the split between these two kind of blocks was? Yeah, well, at one level, it was political. Uh, you know, America, Britain as, as the two leading protagonists on the, on the one hand, were capitalist countries, democracies, you know, the sort of systems that we know and would understand today. Um, the Soviet Union, on the other hand, was a communist country, and it was it was the, the first very significant large communist country that came out of World War I, um, had as its ideals both a system internally for, for, for making uh, life more equitable and, and level, I suppose. Um, but more broadly, the, one of the ideas it had was if communism was to succeed in the Soviet Union, it had to export that mentality, that ideology to other countries. Uh, and so from the 20s and 30s, particularly onwards, when, when Stalin took over, this idea of worldwide communist revolution took took favour. And, and the idea was that, you know, you had to export that. You had to build on grievances on workers' unhappiness, the working class distress in other countries and, and export that. And in the aftermath of World War II, that took on a renewed vigour. It had been evident in the 1920s and 1930s, but really it was with 1945 onwards that it began to become much more obvious. And it began to be much more obvious, not just in a political, ideological way, but increasingly in a military way and increasingly in a, a conflict for, for ideas, for people, for land, for territory. Uh, and so it became characterised more and more by the threat of nuclear war as the, as the 40s and 50s wore on. Okay, yeah, perhaps we can talk about that that escalation and that that armament um, aspect of it in a moment. But um, we've got a couple of listener questions here that lead quite nicely into what you just said. So um, 
two listener questions uh, about the um, inevitability of the conflict. Uh, we've got a question here from the Brutes, Broads and Bastards podcast on Twitter. Thank you for that question. Um, with the defeat of their mutual enemy, Flag of Germany in '45, was a Cold War inevitable between these two superpowers? And what were the fun- fundamental causes? Now, you've already talked about a bit about the causes, um, but I, I really like this aspect of inevitability, which um, Mirav Karlinsky has also asked on Facebook. Was it a direct result of World War II or perhaps might it have occurred anyway as the inevitable clash between communism and capitalism? They're, they're both good questions. And I think the um, the the answer is more complex than a yes or no <laughs> sort of response. <laughs> I mean, I think at one level, you know, you could say, why did this break out in 1945 when it hadn't broken out in 1917 or 19, you know, 21 or whatever, when the Russians won, the Bolsheviks won the civil war in, in the Soviet Union? Um, I think the simple answer is is on a number of levels. You know, one is in the aftermath of World War II, there were, were a number of countries that had been defeated. There were a number of countries, whereas the aftermath of, of the war was split in half effectively. So we can look at Germany as a classic example. You know, Germany was split into four between the four great powers that won World War II. Uh, Very quickly, the three capitalist powers, Britain, America and France, combined their zones into what would become West Germany. Um, The Soviets took over East Germany. And so you had, at one level in one country, a division between ideology, between politics, between economy, between political allegiances. And the idea that those two could live perfectly harmoniously perhaps was a bit naive. So I think at one level, there were substantial differences in the aftermath of World War II that didn't exist at any previous time. At another level, you know, one of the things that pervades the Cold War is is the problem of um, trying to understand what's going on, you know, the perception versus reality. And one of the great difficulties, I think, for the West after World War II was what are the Russians up to? You know, Stalin is Stalin in power in the Kremlin uh, has this great fear of a German invasion. The Russians had been invaded uh, in the First World War and the Second World War, you know, back into the 19th century. And so for Stalin and people in the West looking at this, and there were some very famous um, diplomats who looked at this from both Britain and America in, in the mid-1940s. The question was, what's Stalin up to? Is he trying to expand his revolution outwards by creating, if you think of a map, the states to the west of the Soviet Union, you know, trying to make those communists because he wants to expand and fulfil this idea of worldwide communist revolution? Uh, or was his intention, as others believe, to create a buffer zone between Germany and the centre of Europe uh, and the sort of mass of the Soviet Union? And, and you could almost interpret the same activity in two almost completely different ways. Um, it all began to, uh, and, and so there was a period of sort of two years or so between forty-five and forty-seven, where there was this question: you know, are the Russians expansionist? Are they uh, defensive? Um, you know, what are their plans? And it it was really only with a number of subsequent events that the Russian hand, as it were, became revealed, and and, and that's when the Cold War became much more crystallized, much more you know serious as as as, as an event and. Uh, by then, it was very difficult to roll it back effectively. Right. So, yeah, plenty going on there. Another popular question. We've been referring to the Cold War. Why Why is it called, called the Cold War? When did this kind of term originate for this conflict? It's a very good question. And um, I confess I don't quite know the exact answer. Uh, it became Cold War because a hot war is a sort of physical, you know, conflict. 
Cold War because it was a it was a war of ideology, uh, and of course, in various instances, it did become into a physical war. But fundamentally, it remained peaceful, even though there were lots of wars by proxy, and we can we can explain what those mean in a moment. But you know, fundamentally, it re- it remained peaceful, arguably, and certainly not the conflict that World War Two had been, or, or World War One, or, or other big battles. So you've already mentioned the uh, the armament, the kind of new phase of warfare, really. Um, so right at the beginning of the period, we're kind of beginning to talk about um, in the 40s, there's obviously a major um, change in the way wars are, are fought. Um, how does this change come about and how does it affect the, the beginnings of this conflict and, conflict and then the increasing armament on both sides? I mean, I think to understand that, we need to step back slightly into World War II and, and you know, we need to look at the nature of the conflict. You know, World War II was innovative for a whole variety of ways in a, in a purely military sense. Um, one of them was the innovation of science and the use of technology in warfare. And, you know, you can see that in a whole variety of ways from um, simple weapons through to the the V missiles that the Rus- uh, sorry that the Germans used, the V1 and the V2. Um, you can look at the innovations in jet technology and all the rest of it. But fundamentally, one of the big areas that World War II is remembered for is, of course, its termination. It's the end. It's, it's the dropping of the atomic bomb. Uh, and the construction of the atomic bomb, when the uh, when the Allies created it, it, it was based in the United States. It was fundamentally an American program, but with some important contributions from the Commonwealth countries. But fundamentally, it was born out of a fear that the Germans would first develop that at the start of World War II. Uh, and as the West built those sorts of weapons, as America, you know, constructed those, increasingly towards the end of World War II, the question was, well, if we're building it, what will other countries do? Uh, and towards the tail end of the war, there was a lot of effort on the Germans, obviously, but there were questions raised within the intelligence community about what the Russians were up to. Um, and the atomic bomb was, uh, you know, one of the biggest secrets of World War II. The science behind it, the uh, fact it was being constructed on such a, an enormous scale. Um, and the dropping of the bombs on Japan in uh, August of 1945 was this great watershed moment. You know, all of a sudden, for warfare, you have a device that's the size of a small car dropped out of an aeroplane that has such devastating impact. And it fundamentally changed warfare. And so when it moved into the post-war period, one of the, uh, and as the um, antagonism between sort of East and West grew, one of the key questions for the West was when would the Russians get the atomic bomb and how would that change warfare? And it was assumed from the outset that any future war between East and West would be a nuclear war. This question then, the, the the Cold War, there's a key question asked to Google a lot, and we've got a listener question from it as well. Um, how close did it come then to becoming a, a hot war, a war of action like you just mentioned? You know, how, how close was this nuclear threat? Yeah, it's a question which is often asked, um, and it's most r- frequently referred to the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. Um, and the Cuban Missile Crisis was uh, a reasonably short-lived episode where the the Russians, very secretly, without anyone sort of knowing from the outset, transported uh, armaments to Cuba. And, and Cuba was, is, you know, an island something like 90 miles off the coast of Florida, so within very easy reach of the mainland United States. Um it was a, a communist country led by Fidel Castro, a great friend of the Soviet Union at that time. And uh, 
the Russians transported by ship lots and lots of missiles to Cuba. Uh, American intelligence spotted these missiles en route. Um, there were some of them had got to Cuba. Some of them were were stopped on the way, uh, and um, there was there was a sort of tense standoff for for a short period of time about what was going to happen. Uh, the Americans had various meetings, very famously the head of their strategic air command, which was the nuclear bit of the Air Force, was one of these great uh, characteristic, you know, cigar chomping, big butch Air Force men who just said, let's bomb them. Um, uh, fortunately, saner heads prevailed. The President Kennedy had a, had a very good system of how, how they had discussions about all of this. Uh, and they eventually uh, had a blockade of Cuba, which stopped more ships getting in and also they had an agreement where the russians would dismantle and remove these missiles the reason why people think it came very close to nuclear war was was for a number of reasons um some obvious at the time some much clearer now with the benefit of hindsight so the ones that were obvious at the time was this was a very great standoff between president kennedy on the one hand and the russian leader nikita khrushchev on the other and, and khrushchev was uh Another one of these great characters, you know, from a sort of farming peasant prehistory. Um, he had uh, famously at one meeting of the UN, I think, was taken his shoe off the table, taken his shoe off and wanted to be heard, had banged it on the table. Um, and he 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 was notorious about for using bluff as his main way of dealing with people. Um, he did not want to back down. Um, the Americans were clearly not happy to have these miss- missiles so close to, to mainland United States. And there was a very great sense that this would lead to an escalation of conflict and something you know reasonably small but still serious could lead to conflict um it was all diffused as we now know uh, and they uh, and the americans knew at the time by a very well placed soviet spy uh, a colonel in the soviet military intelligence organization called oleg penkovsky who had passed lots of very significant information to the americans and so they knew what the missiles were they had a good sense that khrushchev's policy was based on bluff and that the best way of dealing with someone like that with the bully is to stand up to them and, and, and khrushchev back down um as always these things are much more complex than they would seem you know the americans had previously put missiles into turkey which is partly what had prompted the russian retaliation um it was seen as sort of quid pro quo um the british looking at this were very interested because they they and and there's a there's a sort of classic quote between uh the british prime minister and someone else in the service saying you know now the americans know what we feel like we've had these missiles on the on the continent within easy reach for decades and and now the americans know i think one of the more interesting bits which came out much more recently i think not until the 1990s was that the the missiles that the americans had known about these missiles and had tracked them and had you know watched them being dismantled what was not known at the time was that the russians had managed to get some tactical nuclear weapons onto cuba and these had never been spotted which is a very long-winded way of answering your question um but to come back to the actual question how close was it uh arguably less close than people I think appreciated at the time but nonetheless one of the fundamental concerns in all of this was the misperception you know if one side had misperceived what the other one was up to could it have led to a miscalculation of some sort that would have led to war um that was the closest arguably that both sides came but there there were other episodes you know there were there was an episode a year before in uh, Berlin 
um, which was uh, in eastern Germany, but like Germany itself had been split in half. So there was, you know, a tiny little capitalist island in the sea of communism. Uh, and in 1961, just after the erection of the Berlin Wall in August that year, uh, Soviet tanks and American tanks across Checkpoint Charlie, which was the divide between East and West, you know, fighting each other, muzzles off their, their their guns, the engines revving, all of the rest of it. So there were certainly other hot points. Um, I think the Cuban Missile Crisis is often held up as the, as the closest it came because there was the more likely threat of nuclear war as opposed to direct sort of conventional confrontation. But on the question of, of people knowing about it, more generally public knowledge, um, you've, you've just mentioned that lots of what we know about um, the conflict has come out relatively recently. Um, and, and at the time, uh, we've got a listener question here from Stratton279 on Instagram, who's asked, uh, did the public know the true severity of the Cold War or were they protected by propaganda? And how long after the Cold War started? And I know the start date is, is obviously not an exact one. Um, how how long after the Cold War started did the public know about it? Um, I think, well, let's take that second question First, I mean, I think if if we date the start of the Cold War to the end of World War II, which is the sort of perceived wisdom, really, um, I, I think people knew fairly quickly that there was there was uh, unease going on. I mean, I think there was a period, as I said, as I said earlier, there was a period of a couple of years where not very much happened. Effectively, you know, most countries were preoccupied with their own economic and uh, uh, and other forms of rebuilding. Um, the big change came in 1947, you know, two years after the end of the World War, uh, effectively. Uh, and it came with a couple of uh, events. Um, there was a there was a threat to Greece and Turkey, uh, which led to the US President Harry Truman launching something called the Truman Doctrine. Uh, and I can't do it in his sort of fantastic Midwest US, US accent. Um, he was from uh, Missouri. But, he, but Truman um, announced through the Truman Doctrine, essentially a promise that the United States would come to the rescue of any country who was uh, fighting sort of political oppression, as it were. And it didn't lay, it didn't label the Soviet Union, but it was very clearly identified as, you know, anyone standing up to the Russians, we, the US, will support you. And that was followed a few months later by the Marshall Plan, named after the then US Secretary of State, George Marshall, which promised, you know, enormous amounts of economic... Um, aid to countries and so what you had in both of those was essentially a an economic commitment and a political commitment to defend Europe particularly but more broadly countries against the Soviets uh, and that was followed two years later really with the creation of NATO so I think you know certainly by the late 1940s people knew that there was this growing antagonism whether they knew there was a conflict as such it was certainly growing um, on the first question uh, the severity of the Cold War, I think, varied from time to time. You know, lot of this was was done in secret. Um, a, a lot of it, you know, my interests particularly were around the intelligence side of this, and and that was very much done in secret, and, and people didn't really know what was going on. I think the broader events were were, were known about, but like most things, there's always a level that lurks below the surface that people don't quite know the detail on. Um, the second half of that first question about propaganda, I think, is is a different question, actually. I don't think it's necessarily linked. Um, propaganda was very significant in a number of ways. You know, one was to try and persuade... So when, when I mentioned earlier about being very little 
direct confrontation between East and West. What there were were lots of wars by proxy. In other words, you had lots of conflict in, in other countries, which were on the face of it between two sides, but which in reality, one side was propped up by the United States, one side was propped up by the by the Soviet Union. And you see that all around the globe, you know, not just in Europe, but in uh, the Middle East, in the Far East, in, in Africa and elsewhere. In those sorts of conflicts, propaganda was fundamentally important, you know, whether it was the dropping of leaflets, whether it was radio broadcasts or, or other things. And um, huge efforts went into that. The, the CIA uh, funded Radio Free Europe, which, you know, the name would suggest was designed to inspire people to rise up against the Russians and do other things. Um, similarly, the Russians, particularly internally within the Soviet Union, you know, the the, the propaganda efforts there were, were hugely significant and trying to persuade people um, not just that the Russian cause was the only cause, but actually there was no alternative that could be stomached, I suppose. Right. So you've already said in so many of your answers, it's become clear. It's obviously such a global, a global thing. You know, it, it's happening um, all over. And we've talked a bit about Cuba, but um, there's a question here from uh, Amber Lincoln on Instagram, a quite a broad one. What What are the most significant or important events in the Cold War? And perhaps we could use that question to talk about some of these these proxy conflicts and whereabouts they were happening, kind of more of the significant turning points. Gosh, I could spend a very long time answering this. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think at one level, of course, you know, this political divergence is one of the most significant events. And the way in which countries almost, ta- you know, ta- tax their colours onto one side or another. You know, there were some neutral countries in Europe, for instance, in the Cold War, but majority of countries were either Western aligned or Eastern aligned. Um, and and increasingly, as you went through the 1950s and onwards, you know that spread to uh, the Middle East and the Far East and, uh, and elsewhere. So I think those were very significant because, you, in a sense, what you ended up with, I mean, it would be over the top to say a, a world divided into two camps, but certainly Europe was divided into two camps, and increasingly, as I say, other other regions as well. Um, I think there were great differences between the military technologies of these kinds. You know, so the the division in camps was not just ideological, it was economic and also it was military. And so you could look at, you could quite nicely map NATO countries onto the the Western-oriented ones politically and and all the rest. Um, Then, of course, you can look at the the specific events themselves. You know, we've spoken about the Cuban Missile Crisis and how significant that was. And, And you can see other events, I think, that go through time. Another way to think about it, I guess, is to say... You know, the world, uh, the Cold War ended in 1991 with the, the the collapse of the Soviet Union, with the falling of the Berlin Wall, with the um, rise of independence in formerly Soviet states. You know, that's 30 years ago. It's probably longer than the age of many of the listeners. <laughs> Certainly, I don't remember the end of the Cold War, which, you know, might date me. But, um, but if you then look at to say, well, there were very significant events in the Cold War itself. Which of those still has a hangover or is still felt today, arguably? Um, And perhaps one of the most prominent is you can say, well, where are there still communist states in the world? You know, and the number one fundamentally important communist state is, of course, China. Uh, China, you know, became a communist power in 1949. There was a 
a civil war in the aftermath of World War II. Um, it was one of these sort of proxy battles in the sense where the civil war was half propped up by uh, a US side, half propped up to some extent by a Russian communist side. And of course, that still exists today. And that and that's a very significant one. Um, you could also argue, and some have, that we are now in a, a second Cold War with the Russians today. And that's a very different kind of Cold War. It's not in the same sort of ideological or economic way. But it's still a conflict where uh, you don't have physical fighting as the main ingredient, I suppose, of that conflict. Yeah, really interesting uh, answers there. And, and, and I mean, I hope we can can dig into that a little, little more. Um, there are some questions about the legacy and the end that you, you just mentioned there. Um, I, I'm going to ask another listener question now. And I imagine, again, this might be one that varies, uh, you know, both geographically and the time within the time frame we're talking about. But... Um, Jorn Eichhorn on Twitter has asked, the longer the Cold War is over, the more I read about how people cross seamlessly without any problems, the borders between East and West. So what's fact and fiction about um, the so-called Iron Curtain and the confinement of people in the East? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mentioned earlier the the Berlin Wall, which was uh, erected in August 1961. And, and that's, a to give you a sort of microcosm of an answer, that, that's a good example of all of this. Um Take a step back. Germany, as I said, was divided after World War II between an eastern half and a, and a western half. Uh, increasingly through the 1950s, people were allowed to cross. There were borders, but it was a reasonably free, um, permeable border, I suppose, that people could move across. Uh, increasingly through the late 50s and then into the very early 1960s, the Russians got more and more concerned because there was a growing... Um, disparity between the sort of economic wealth of East and West. And, and so increasingly, more and more, East Germans were crossing into West Germany, not for political reasons or anything else, but it's just West Germans were richer. The way of life was was richer and more affluent. Um, and, and so in August 61, literally overnight, uh, barbed wire was rolled around that encircled uh, Berlin, the, 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 the zone of Berlin. Um, and that was replaced with a three metre, I think it was, high wall that was constructed a month or so afterwards. Um, there was there was a border, people could cross, you know, people lived in one and a certain number worked in the other, um, but it became a much more difficult border to cross. And I think you could see this all the way through other countries, really, where that border zone was, and it became difficult. You know, people did cross, but the difficulty was not so much the, the physical crossing of the border, as it were, it was getting to the border itself. Um, so to give you another brief example, one of the West's best spies in the Cold War was a, was a, a Soviet KGB officer called Oleg Gordievsky. Um, he'd been working for British intelligence from the 1970s. Uh, like many very significant spies, he had had an exfiltration plan worked out. So if he felt he was under... Uh, uh, observation or scrutiny, I suppose he could he could escape. Um, he'd been living overseas for a number of years. He was then back in Moscow working at the KGB headquarters, uh, and he activated this exfiltration plan, which was very elaborately done, where he was smuggled into a car by uh, British officials into a specially constructed car, driven to the border uh, in Finland and taken across the border. And the the journey, which you know is in is in a number of books, which you can read. The journey from getting from Moscow to the Finnish border 
was tremendously difficult. And, you know, and, and the ways in which it was worked out where cars could speed up and slow down to try and escape the, you know, the, the Russian monitoring. So I think, again, it's a very long-winded answer. I do apologise. But I think the, the, the fact is the, the border itself was problematic. But for many, it was getting to the border itself that was very, very difficult. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The retreat from empire, and in many of these countries there began, there were lots of sort of local skirmishes. Britain tended to see these at the time as being Cold War. So anyone that opposed the British regime must therefore be Soviet-inspired and communist. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. And I'm going to ask another broad one, I'm afraid. About espionage, you've mentioned it so, so many times. It seems to underlie and underpin so many of the events um, that we've already talked about. Um, but Tracy A on Instagram has, has asked, how much of an impact did spies have on how the conflict played out? Oh, gosh. Now, here's one I could, really could talk about until the, the cows come home. How significant was espionage? So I think we can we can look at this in two ways. One is we can look at very specific episodes and we can say that episode fundamentally was um, reacted to as a result of espionage and the information that was had. Uh, and you can see that in you know a whole host of ways. The, the, the technical intelligence which led the Russians to build their atomic bomb in the way they built it was very, very significant. They they had blueprints from World War II passed by a variety of different scientists. You know, that led them to choose to follow that particular scientific pattern. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis we, we've spoken about, you know, there are other episodes where uh, either technical information obtained via satellites or photographs from aeroplanes, whatever, was, was very significant. There are other episodes where uh, human espionage was very, very significant. If you then take them out of the isolation, I suppose, of, an, of a single event, and you say, what was the overall contribution of intelligence in the Cold War? And that's much more difficult to answer um, because you're, you're then coming up with, you know, the what-if questions. If there had been no espionage, how would the Cold War have been different? And we just, it's very hard to say. I, I often would answer this by saying the simple reality is that policymakers in both East and West you know, 
continuously supported, financed their intelligence community. And had they not thought they were useful, they would have cut funding and not supported them. The intelligence communities in you know, Britain, America, the Soviet Union and elsewhere were very, very significant in terms of people, in terms of resourcing and all the rest of it. So clearly it was felt there was some need for, for all of that information. Um, what does this tell us more broadly? I think it's still difficult. You know, back in the 1980s, there was a book looking at intelligence which talked about it as being the missing dimension. You know, we we know what politicians were doing. We know how they dealt with scenarios. We don't know what led them to think the way they thought about things and what was the role of intelligence. So I think, you know, this is still, to some extent, an, an evolving story. Uh, we know lots about the Western half of what went on. And we know that Western intelligence was very well organised, that it had a good process for, you know, gathering information and using it. We know a bit less, in uh, apart from episodes about Soviet intelligence. What we do know is that Soviet intelligence was was fundamentally different. You know, it it was about gathering secrets, secrets like like it had been in the West, but but in the East, it was just about as much as internal surveillance, which was never a Western concern. So it was about trying to find out what the Americans and the Brits were up to as much as it was watching Soviet citizens and making sure they didn't um, have thoughts that were, you know, ideologically wrong or went went against the Soviet system. So in that sense, the internal surveillance of of the Soviet system was was fundamental and and comprehensive. And, you know, some writers in the Soviet Union said it was only in their thoughts that they had complete independence. You know, they couldn't speak out loud or write things down because who knows who was watching and listening. So... um, the short answer is uh, yes, very significant. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and can we can we uh, dig into that a little bit more for listeners in terms of um, perhaps the evolution of, of the organisations on both sides? How did it affect the the KGB or um, Americans? I know that you, you know, there, there's the CIA that kind of evolves early on. Yeah. Well, the Russians had uh, created going all the way back to the the Bolsheviks had taken power in 1917. There was then a period of three years or so of civil war, whether uh, and the Bolsheviks you know, one power. As part of the efforts in the Civil War, you know, way back in in 1917, 1918, they created uh, the Cheka, which evolved into various organisations that would become the KGB. So, but really from the outset, internal surveillance was a fundamentally, you know, innate part of the Soviet state, as it were. Uh, And that grew. And the idea that you could recruit people and put them into important places was very, very significant. You know, some of the best Soviet spies, the the best gang of them, I suppose, is uh, the Cambridge Five. You know, the the, the five uh, affluent four, you know, four of them were affluent. But anyway, the affluent uh, Cambridge-educated spies recruited in the 1930s by the Soviet Union that went on to cause absolute havoc in what they passed across to the Russians in various different ways. Uh, and, the, and the Russian approach to espionage, the Soviet approach to espionage, was often quite different. You know, they would take a punt on someone as a university student saying, we don't know what you'll do in your life, but we think you might, then, so there might be that chance, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll recruit you, we'll run you, we'll let you off the hook, as it were, for 10 years and see where you end up, but we'll keep in touch. And uh, the Russians also relied much more on um, blackmail and other forms of, you know, less uh, friendly ways of inciting someone to spy for them. 
And there are lots of examples of where they blackmailed someone into working for them and passing information. Um, uh, broadly speaking, I think the Russians, uh, the Soviets, you know, they were often thought to collect the assessment is they collected vast amounts of information, but they were much less good at using it. Uh, it was much more a collection state, you know, having knowledge, having power. The Western sides, Britain and America, Britain had intelligence communities going back to the, you know, pre-World War One. So by the Cold War, we had a very developed, I think, system of intelligence uh, looking in different ways, whether it was foreign, uh, domestic, technical versus human sort of more elaborate systems of analyzing intelligence and feeding them into decision making uh the americans were much slower you know pearl harbor was the sort of wake-up call to them for intelligence and and they had a variety of organizations between 1941 and the end of the war and and they they sort of many of them closed down at the end of the war it was only in 1947 that with the national security act that the cia was created and all of a sudden, you know, the 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 evolution of the Cold War, as we've already discussed at, at that precise point, the ramping up of the military conflict and the requirement to have intelligence led to the CIA all of a sudden becoming this enormous organisation that we would recognise today. We've already spoken about uh, how global the conflict was. LK Whitehead on Instagram has asked, how did it play out in Africa? Yeah, so... Um, a broad rise. I mean, Europe was the fundamental Cold War battleground, and yeah, and that's where it, where it began in the 1940s, and that's where it continued all the way up to the end. Um, it began to spread more and more through other regions, really from the 1950s, uh, and it did that, I think, in a number of ways. Um, one of them was post World War II, Britain was committed to to decolonizing, and so a number of Commonwealth countries, uh, colonial countries, were granted independence. You know, India in 1947 and many more afterwards. For Britain, they would often see the retreat from empire, and in many of these countries, there began there were lots of sort of local skirmishes. Britain tended to see these at the time as being Cold War. So anyone that opposed the British regime must therefore be Soviet-inspired and communist. And so what, what happened in lots of countries, and Africa Africa was you know no exception to this, were what were arguably nationalist local conflicts being perceived as Cold War conflicts when they weren't necessarily the case. So that was one element. Uh, another element to this, which increasingly took place um, in the Middle East and Far East and then spread to Africa from the 1950s, was the, was the view that the uh, President Eisenhower and his sort of administration through the middle and late 50s had, which was this idea of the domino theory. You know, like a pack of dominoes, you set them on their edges and you you, you set up a nice uh, chain of them. And if you flick over the first one, the rest fall down. That was the case to some extent in the Far East. And it was certainly the case in Africa. Uh, and in Africa, the Cold War arguably was more localised than I think it was elsewhere. But there were certainly communist regimes that, that, that you know, grew up uh, 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 and lots of skirmishes that grew up. Um, Egypt was a very, very significant one, I think, in, in the mid-1950s, which had broader connotations and, and which led to the, the very badly botched Suez uh, War in, in October 56. But there were others. Um, and I think to some extent you still see 
the hangover of that again today with with the sort of broken, fragile nature of a number of these states. Got a question here about um, Amber Lincoln again from Instagram, another from from here, saying who were the winners and losers if there are any. And it sounds like there, you know, there were so many different skirmishes and and, and various fronts being, you know, happening at, at various times in this time. But I, I wonder, is there any answer to that question? Well, I, I mean, I think you could you, you you could ask this at a very simple level, which is that you know the West won and the East lost. The, the Soviet system, the political ideological system imploded and all of those countries that were allied with it to a great extent, you know, particularly in the European context, also imploded and, and became independent and, and sort of shed that that Soviet uh, allegiance. So arguably, that's the very easy answer. Of course, there's a much more complex answer than all of this. And um, whether some of those countries, you know, wish they hadn't lost and preferred things back then to now is is a totally separate question i think but but i think at a basic level you know you could you could say as a ideological political conflict the soviet system lost and it imploded this is a question i perhaps could have included a bit earlier uh, i think i skipped us ahead a bit but we've had a question about cold war leaders too uh, and their various styles and impact on the conflict are you happy to give a bit of an overview there yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think the, the, the Soviet system had uh, a number of leaders. You know, Lenin was, of course, the first one, which predated this. Uh, Stalin took over in, in, the, in the 1920s, effectively, and, and lasted all the way up to his death in 1953. And um, he, he was replaced by Khrushchev and was replaced by Brezhnev. Then there were a number of short-lived leaders before... Uh, Gorbachev took over and from an from a Soviet perspective I think they you know there were very significant differences Stalin um out of World War II was increasingly paranoid uh as I mentioned earlier this this question about whether he was expansionist and and therefore that's why he wanted to take over states whether he was increasingly defensive and, that, and that's why he built these buffer states um but the but when when he died, you know the the terror that he had instilled on the Soviet system, and the propaganda that had come out about what he was all about, began to erode. Uh, and there was a period of about three years or so after his death before Khrushchev finally took over. And in 1956, Khrushchev. Um, launched something called the secret speech but of course like all secret speeches there was a spy in the audience and and or, or managed to get a copy of the document uh, and in that very important speech both at the time and, and sort of afterwards you know he, he debunked all of this he he basically said you know stalin was uh, had this terror and we're going to change how we did things and so they they carried on for a little while being a period of sort of peaceful coexistence so i suppose the the simple answer is you you can the different leaders had different approaches you know some of them were old and paranoid some of them had very different views Gorbachev of course was uh, in Soviet terms a young leader he was in his fifties when he took over and he had these dual policies of perestroika and glasnost which you know many people have said led to the end of the war perestroika was um, sort of more more free living i suppose and relaxing of economic things glasnost was slightly more freedom of speech uh the two the duality of those led to the uh relaxing of the economy and the way it was run it led to slightly more people beginning to make a bit of money and be a bit more sort of taken away from those constraints but it also led to the rise of free speech in lots of the Soviet states. And, and so people, 
like all these things they're debated. You know, same people say it's those policies which ended the Cold War. In other words, very long with answer again, the reality is you see, if you look at the Cold War, you can see peaks and troughs of, you know, conflict and tension, uh, friendlier things, people were, were getting on a bit more. Um, arguably, those were to do with the personality traits of the Soviet leaders, um, but equally, they were the personality traits of the American leaders. You know, we, we can look at some of these leaders and they were much more um, in their rhetoric and how they spoke about things. You know, Reagan, who came to power in the 1980s, spoke about the Russians being the evil empire, you know, and he he, he sort of brought about a way of speaking about the Russians and the Soviets, which hadn't been around for decades, probably. Um, so I think, you know, there's an element to this of both sides, but fundamentally in, in all history, what we tend to ignore are the role of personalities. And I think certainly in the Cold War, the role of personalities are very, very significant. And, we, and, and so it's a good question and we should we should think about them much more. Mm, absolutely fascinating stuff. And it's interesting that you say about Reagan and that rhetoric that he was using, because um, obviously he's towards the end and to closer to that 1991 date, you've already said, as being closer to the end. So what what was his his kind of relationship with his counterpart? And um, how, how did that end be the how how did the end begin if that makes sense how did the end begin or how did the begin end begin, uh, the uh, so i think you know again i think we need we need to recognize the importance of espionage and intelligence um reagan came to power you know he 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 was his perfect counterpart was margaret thatcher of course and there were lots of you know great images you can see of the two of them they got they got on fabulously like a house on fire um, at one level they were both very very anti-Soviet and, and, uh, and, you know, very keen to bring an end to the Cold War. Um, they had to their advantage the espionage of Oleg Gordievsky, who, who we've previously mentioned. Um, he was very, very good at passing information about the sort of mentality of the, of the Kremlin. So, for instance, in the early 1980s, Brezhnev, who was by then a very, very old leader, was in charge. Uh, again, very paranoid, you know, heard these speeches about the evil empire and in his brain equated those with the the west is going to launch a first nuclear strike on us and in his last couple of years Brezhnev was absolutely petrified that the americans would launch a first strike nuclear war uh and gordievsky passed this sort of fear across to the west and and actually you know here is a a key example of where you can draw a, a line almost between the the espionage information and a change in policy so Gordievsky's intelligence led to a change in Thatcher's rhetoric uh, and she used that to persuade um, uh, Reagan to change his so the evil empire speech you know after that he was said this this really it might play out well domestically in political terms but it plays out very very badly in sort of international cold war terms um, and so he was asked to change those, and you know, and he did, and 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 so that sort of rhetoric changed things. I mean, there are other. I've already forgotten what your question was, but there are other reasons why the Cold War ended. You know, one of them was the Americans at that same time really ramped up the military side of things, um, and they created something called SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was known as Star Wars because, of course, the Star Wars films were very good then. Which was basically a space-based laser system that would shoot down incoming Soviet missiles. Uh, and that had the potential to fundamentally change the military conflict 
uh, and that led some believe to a massive increase in Russian defense expenditure, which was at the detriment of its economic expenditure, which then led to more unhappiness and hostility, which Gorbachev's reforms were then allowed to be exploited by. But like everything, there are so many different strands to this that were sort of intermingling. It becomes very, very complex. Mm-hmm. Yes, as with everything. And uh, if we are then to take um, this 1991 date and and as the kind of official end. You've already alluded to it. It's a lot more complicated that. And and we've got a question here. Has it ever really ended? PJ Hire 2 on Twitter wants to know, has it ever ended? Well, I think, I I, I think had you asked someone in the 1990s, they'd have said yes. Um, Had you asked someone in the the early 2000s, they'd have said yes. Uh, If you ask someone in the last, I don't know, five years, people would say no. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think at the one end, uh, at one scale, you know, we, we, we've spoken about the, the political and ideological nature of the conflict. You know, Russia is not a communist system. They have no uh, desires for communist expansion. But nonetheless, there are political differences between both countries. There are, you know, clearly military differences between both countries. And something which very much annoys the Russians is the fact that many of the former Soviet states are now politically, mil- militarily aligned with the West. And, and you know, that, that creates fear, it creates concern, much like Stalin had concerns back in the 1940s. Um, arguably, you know, some would say we are in a Cold War again. We we do not have direct military confrontation, but all of the, the, the cyber efforts that go on between East and West, all of the attempts to, you know, sway elections and to interfere domestically are... are technologically very different but at a simplistic level very similar to what was going on in the 1920s for instance so um i i think you could argue it both ways is the simple view and i i you know i have very uh clearly not given my point of view on all of this because i think it's much more complex than a, than a sort of black or white answer but but clearly there is tension in a very different way at the same time there is also um uh, reasons why countries work, you know, East and West works together much more closely than it would have done in the Cold War. There are there, there are common enemies, as it were, and you know, over the last twenty years, terrorism has been a very common enemy, and and so there have been reasons why countries would work together. But but there are other fundamental differences that necessarily won't necessarily go away. That was Michael Goodman. His latest book is The CIA and the Pursuit of Security. History, Documents and Contexts, which is co-authored with Hugh Dillon and David Guillaume. That's published by Edinburgh University Press and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for a discussion on women's history for International Women's Day. (laughs) 